It's Wednesday, October 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The FBI has now confirmed that Samuel Little is the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. Little has confessed to 93 murders. FBI crime analysts believe that all of his confessions are credible, and law enforcement has been able to verify 50 confessions. One of the interesting parts of this is how many details Little remembers of his victims. Names, dates, locations. Little has even sketched the faces of many of those victims. Now the FBI is looking for help from the public in matching the remaining unconfirmed confessions. Christine Palazzolo, crime analyst with the FBI's Violent Crime Apprehension Program, and Angela Williamson, DOJ VICAP liaison, join us to talk about the most prolific serial killer in history. Next, we continue to talk about Samuel Little and how he managed to evade being connected to all these murders until he was convicted in 2014 for the strangling deaths of three women in Los Angeles. It was after being put in prison in California that he spoke to a Texas Ranger and began to confess to over 90 murders. LA County Deputy District Attorney Beth Silverman, who secured Little's 2014 conviction, joins us for how he was finally brought to justice. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I grabbed my legs and pulled to the water. Mm-hmm. That's the only one that I ever killed by drowning. Describe the location where she's left. Okay, I left her with her head still head in the water, half her body in the underwater, and the thighs and legs on the back. Joining us now is Christy Palazzolo, FBI VICAP crime analyst, and Angela Williamson, DOJ VICAP liaison. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. Sure, no problem. Just to set the scene uh, briefly, the VICAP is the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program for the FBI. We're going to be talking about Samuel Little, who the FBI now has confirmed to be the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. We first heard of Samuel Little in Los Angeles, where he was convicted of three murders there, and then he started confessing to about 90 other murders And since then, your work there at the FBI, you've been able to confirm about 50 more murders attributed to Samuel Little. Tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing and how you're confirming these murders and attributing them to him. Well, all of the confirmations are made by the state and local investigating agencies. The FBI is kind of just coordinating a lot of it, but we're leaving it to the individual agencies to make that final determination. And then we're also assisting them in terms of identifying case matches back to Little's confessions. You know, we have 93 confessions that he's made, a lot of really specific detail that he's given, but in terms of precise dates and locations or jurisdictions, it's not as <laughs> detailed, uh, it's not as precise. So we're trying to assist those agencies in terms of searching what files and databases we have access to to help direct them to a particular case for them to pull and then research it to see if additional details match up with Little's confession. And that's been one of the most interesting things about this case in particular is the amount of detail that Samuel Little is providing now. Obviously, some of the dates might be a little shaky, but other things, the memory recollection that he has of all these murders is pretty astounding. He really goes into detail about certain scenes. He draws, he sketches the victims that he has. There's numerous sketches that the FBI has now that he's made. And this has been one of the most interesting parts is 
just how clearly he does remember a lot of this. He really has, I mean, the generic term is a photographic memory, but that's what we want the public to realize. You know, he may be off on the date when he killed these women, but the details is what he's always spot on with. And when you're looking at the drawings, okay, they're not a fabulous work of art, but they're not that bad. But there's always something in the drawings that is very unique to that individual. And the cases that are matched where he's done drawings, there's a feature in those drawings that matches that individual in their life perfectly. And so that's what we want the public to think about. The little details he mentions, things he knew about their lives before he took them. That's really what is critical and what we know him to be really accurate with. What we found in a lot of the cases that we've confirmed, he was seen in when we find the case file, there's a witness statement describing him down to when he had a gold tooth, down to when he had a cast on, um, really specific details. So we're hoping that, you know, someone may be missing their friend from, say, 1979, and they remember her hanging out with this guy. And so that is, again, why we put all the mug shots out, not, not to show this collage of little, but to show what he looked like at each time when these women went missing and disappeared. And so we're hoping that, you know, the public can take a look at that and maybe they'll recognize him. And that's where the FBI is right now. They're asking for the public's help in matching some remaining unconfirmed confessions. And in your latest release, you paired a bunch of interviews that Samuel Little was doing with investigators and the drawings that he was making. Tell us a little bit about those interviews and those drawings specifically. So those confessions specifically, the reason that we're spotlighting those five is because those are five that we have done a lot of outreach on. We have searched exhaustively, again, through what databases we have access to, and those individual agencies have done exhaustive searches as well. And for what we believe to be one or multiple reasons in terms of either the victim was never reported missing, the body was never found, or the death was never ruled a homicide. For one or some combination of those reasons, we think that that is why we have been unable to find a case match back to those confessions. So we have tried to provide as much as we can out to the public, again, from the drawings to little talking about the victim to details of the confession that he's given, especially details about that individual victim, background information, what she was wearing or last eight or if she had family that he knew about to try to jog somebody's memory so that if this lines up with a loved one or an associate or a neighbor that they remember either going missing or being killed or maybe even dying under somewhat suspicious circumstances. If there's anything that matches back to that confession, that's what we need to hear about. And you guys are looking at these videos while the investigators are asking him these questions. Give us your sense of Samuel Little in his current state right now, his health is failing him. And he's at this point where he's just speaking very broadly about everything that's happened in great detail. And you look at some of these videos that you guys released and he's almost happy or excited to tell these stories. What is your sense of, of watching him over all these hours of interviews? He is excited and it's hard to say that and it's hard to communicate that to the public, but he's extremely cooperative and talking about the cases almost re-energizes him. And again, that's a hard thing to say, but it's the reality that we deal with. From our perspective, his confessions are 100% credible. We know that. We believe that. The details he's giving, he really is reliving what he did decades ago. 
He's in that moment. He traveled back and he's just reliving it. We don't question his motive. We don't really ponder it too much. Our objective is to find these victims and to give their loved ones answers. It is eerily creepy. The Texas Ranger who's doing a lot of these interviews at one point in an interview said, you ask him a question about one of the victims and he kind of starts scratching his face or he looks up, you know, at the ceiling and almost remembering kind of a Rolodex of the victims that he has. And when he nails the one that he's really thinking of, then he goes into all of the, the details there. It's eerie to watch when he does those things. It's really stunning the level of recall he has and it almost to the point of being unbelievable, but that's the most impressive thing is that all of those little details that he's given us when we have found a case matching up to his confession, all of those details line up. He is spot on with that. So even some things that sound incredible, like I said, a last meal that the victim ate, he can tell you exactly what she sat down and ate just a few hours before he killed her. So even though it's hard to believe he is 100% credible with all of the things that he's been giving that he's never knowingly misled us. We've always said he's not great about dates and specific locations. He can give us a city he was in, but if he says he drove out of town before he dumped the body, it's not absolute exactly where he was, which causes some difficulty. But other than that, the details in terms of their interaction, it's always spot on. All the information that the FBI has released, these videos, the sketches of the victims, there's also kind of a timeline of Samuel Little through the years and all the various points that he's had been arrested or came across through under law enforcement's uh, supervision there. And you really just see him kind of grow up through the years. How did he evade being nailed for one of these murders for so long? He would literally kill someone and he'd be gone the next day. And he was very particular about who we chose. A lot of the women, the victims, lived high-risk lifestyles, unfortunately. And then, as Christy said before, some of their murders weren't even called murders. They were misclassified as overdoses or undetermined. But again, he was just so highly mobile that he was just gone. So how could anyone connect the dots? Right. It was almost an impossible task. A lot of his homicides were prior to the advent of DNA. He was pretty evidence conscious in terms of what he left behind and what he was careful not to leave behind. So there wasn't a whole lot to tie him to it. And even in some of the case reports that we found that have been matches back to his confessions, a man fitting his description is described or sometimes even a name. They have the name Samuel or Sam or some variation of that. But because, like Angela said, he was so mobile and was in one town and gone the next day, even if they had that name, they had nothing else to go on. So there was never any person to target, to identify, to follow up an interview or anything else. He was just gone. If anybody has any information that could help to confirm any of Samuel Little's other murders, you can contact the FBI with tips at 1-800-CALL-FBI or visit tips.fbi.gov. Christy Palazzolo, FBI VICAP crime analyst, and Angela Williamson, DOJ VICAP liaison. Thank you both very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for getting the story out there. They look at this little guy sitting in a wheelchair across the room and he looks small and he might look frail and they don't really see it. And then when you bring in the victims who are able to 
really paint the picture of what happened, then they get an idea of what these serial killers really are about. Joining us now is Beth Silverman, L.A. County Deputy District Attorney. Thank you very much for joining us, Beth. Sure. We're going to be continuing talking about Sam Little, who the FBI now says is the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. They've confirmed over 50 murders attributed to him. He's confessed to about 90, maybe I think it was 93 was the official number. Just a very interesting story and really kind of the uh, all the sketches and the, the memory that he has of all of these victims. Beth, you were instrumental in getting the conviction of Sam Little in Los Angeles in 2014 for the strangling death of three women. Tell us how you got involved. Tell us what you know of Sam Little through your work on this. A couple of the cases were brought to me back before 2014 when we actually started looking at these cases. And I think we started out with one murder and then there were two where the evidence in the sexual assault kits matched to Sam Little and we got a CODIS hit and within a few months we got our third hit. So we started doing a background on him and investigating him along with the LAPD. Mitzi Roberts was really the main detective that followed it all the way through to trial. Although she had a couple of different partners, one was with Jackson and then Tim Marsha at trial, who assisted and expanded our investigation across the country. And they flew back to Florida and had interviews with certain people. And they went to Mississippi and we just started looking for victims where cases hadn't been prosecuted, as well as what I like to do is to find surviving victims and put them on at trial in order to be able to show the jury what actually happened during these assaults by Sam Little. This was across the country. I think it was 19 states total that Sam Little was rampaging through, really. And it wasn't until you guys were able to convict him in 2014 that he was finally caught completely because before that he had been arrested well, by police. Once we arrested him and I filed charges, he was in custody after that yeah. point in time and he never got out after that. But before that, he had been caught before by law enforcement and would always get out. Well, you know what the mistake I think was? They would try him on one case, one victim. And I've learned that in order to convict these people, you really need to bring in as many crimes across the country as pattern evidence, as many surviving victims as you can, because they look at this little guy sitting in a wheelchair across the room and he looks small and he might look frail and they don't really see it. And then when you bring in the victims who are able to really paint the picture of what happened, then they get an idea of what these serial killers really are about, like Sam Little, because generally when you're talking about these kinds of cases, we don't have eyewitnesses. They're all based on forensics. So to be able to actually show what this animal did to these women, having some of these surviving victims, if they're willing to come forward, if you work with them long enough, really is a game changer. Samuel Little strangled the majority of his victims. Tell us a little bit about some of the survivors that you were able to get in contact with and the testimony that they delivered back during his trial. Well, it was interesting when we started delving into his history and his criminal background before he came to L.A., he was tried in San Diego, and they reached a deal down there that meant that he was only going to serve four years for basically the attempted murder of two women. And so one of those women we couldn't find by the time we went to trial on our case in 2014. But on the other case, we were able to find that victim. And the other victim from San Diego was actually unconscious when the police caught him in the act of strangling her in the back of a car. We weren't able to locate her, but we were able to locate the police officers who were on scene. 
And so we brought them down to describe what they observed with respect to this unconscious woman unclosed in the back of this serial killer's car. And then on top of that, we had a couple of victims who had survived in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and we brought them out. And they all talked about the various ways they were strangled and how he seemed to enjoy strangling them and then lightening the pressure, allowing them to come back to consciousness and then doing it again. And it clearly seemed that this was a serial killer who loved and enjoyed and derived sexual gratification from actually the act of the strangulation as opposed to the sex act. A lot of reports say that he didn't really like being called a rapist, but when it came to being acknowledged as a killer, it wasn't as bad. Right. He was proud of the fact that he's a killer. He's not so proud of the fact that we keep calling him a sexual predator. His claim is that they're all prostitutes, and so therefore they were capable of giving consent. Another interesting thing is that right now, I mean, he's speaking to investigators and he's sharing all the stories now. You see videos of his descriptions of his encounters with his victims, and he almost seems happy. It's like a reminiscent, happy moment. But initially, when you guys were dealing with him, he was not cooperative at all. As a free person who hadn't yet been convicted of any crime... The attitude of prove it, prove that I'm guilty is is nothing unusual. I mean, we do that in all of these cases. There's a huge difference between putting on a full-blown trial where you're putting on prior victims who had survived than sitting down and talking to somebody after they're in a position where they've been convicted and they're going to serve a life without parole sentence. Completely different type of motivation, right, at play. What is your sense of this man? Obviously, he shows very little remorse. And I mentioned those videos when he's just talking. It seems like a happy, reminiscent moment when he's remembering what he did to these victims. What is your sense of this person? He's evil. I think he doesn't have any remorse because I think he's a sociopath. It was pretty obvious throughout the trial that he believed he had a right to do these things and that these women weren't really worth anything. They had no value. And so he's a serial killer. He's not really, in many ways, very different from any of the other serial killers that I've prosecuted over the course of the last decade or so. He seems to very much enjoy a lot of the attention right now. Well, uh, now he does. Yeah, right. exactly. Remember, once he was convicted on those three murders, he was basically going to spend the rest of his life in a California state prison. And so when they wanted to talk to him and promised they would fly him to Texas and he would get out of California for a while... And all these detectives would come to see him and bring him food and chat with him and pay him attention. He really had nothing to lose. And the longer that he cooperates with them, the more attention he gets. He became the star almost. The last question I just wanted to ask was, how did that transfer go over? He wanted to get out of the L.A. prison system and move out to Texas. How did that all transpire? They extradited him with our help here in L.A. and sent him to Texas. And there were a number of interviews that were conducted out there. And Missy Roberts and Tim Marsh and I flew out there and listened to some of the interviews when he was talking about the California cases. And I guess at some point he got tired of it in Texas and asked to go back to L.A. And once he pled guilty on their crime, the deal was that he came back to L.A. to serve his sentence here. And so now he's back in L.A. and apparently there are ongoing interviews and detectives coming out to talk to him and trying to resolve some of these other unsolved cases around the country. Beth Silverman, L.A. County Deputy District Attorney, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Daily Dive.